So think back over all of your past Christmases and birthdays and anniversaries. Have you ever opened a gift, become excited upon discovering what it is, only to then be deflated by seeing the sticker, some assembly required? <laughs> you, you take a, a closer look, and then you decide, this feels like more of a chore than a present. And so you, you just shove it in a closet, never to be seen from again. But then, maybe there's something you've opened that so excited you, that, that was such an amazing gift, that you found yourself undeterred by the chore of assembling it. The Christmas before last, Ethan's Nana bought him an awesome immersive play kitchen. And we knew that he was going to love it, so we wanted to, to give it to him already assembled on Christmas morning. But with it being Advent season and, and preparing for our Christmas Eve service in addition to our weekly services, I didn't get around to assembling it until the night before Christmas Eve. I don't recall how long the instructions claimed that it was going to take to assemble, but they lied. <laughs> there was something like 370 individual pieces that needed to be screwed together by hand. So after putting Ethan to bed uh, the night before Christmas Eve, I stayed up for three and a half hours working on it, only to make it halfway, uh, so that it was another three and a half hours on Christmas Eve after our service uh, to get it finished. But it was worth it. And I knew that it would be. I never once considered not finishing the job and just storing it in the closet. The gift of his joy was so amazing that it didn't matter how much work it took. The best gifts are like that. I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 127 as we consider God's good gifts. You can find it on page 573 in the first half of the Pew Bible, Psalm 127. Hear the word of the Lord to you. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the many gifts that you have and that you continue to bestow upon us. Lord, move us to respond to your good gifts with thanksgiving. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. A Song of Ascents of Solomon. A note in your Bible that this superscription of the text is not just another heading that's been added by the publisher of your English Bible. No, this heading is actually part of the inspired text. A Song of Ascents of Solomon. We're not 100% certain what the title Song of Ascents actually means. It's part of the superscription on 15 consecutive psalms from Psalm 120 through 134. They all bear this heading. So clearly they are to be seen as a group. Uh, but how so? 
Well, the best guess appears to be that they were to be sung as the people from all around Israel would make their journey ascending up the Temple Mount in Jerusalem for the three pilgrim feasts each year, like Passover. But as you read through these groups of 15 psalms, this one really sticks out. It's the only one in the group that is entirely comprised of proverbs, maxims about how life works, about what best leads to flourishing and what most leads to suffering. The series of proverbs that make up this psalm could just as easily be found in the book of Proverbs, and definitely in certain portions of the book of Ecclesiastes, which we studied not that long ago. Even the the superscription seems to prepare us for this proverbial wisdom, as it says, of Solomon, the wisest of all men, the author of most of the book of Proverbs, and possibly the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, whether of Solomon here in the superscription, whether that means that this psalm was written by Solomon or that it was written for Solomon, say, by his dad, David, or that it was in some sense about Solomon, about his task of building the first temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, well, we can't really say. But it calls our attention to wisdom. The psalm begins, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So clearly it's the imagery of building a physical house, but it obviously speaks to more than that. Uh, The language of a house is used throughout the Hebrew Bible to speak not merely of physical houses and of palaces and of the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God, but also to speak of families, as in the house of Abimelech and the house of Jacob. Families And further, it's used to speak of kingdoms, as in the thrones of the house of David. Whatever it is that, that you are seeking to build in your life right now, a house, a business, a family, a church, a kingdom, the decisive factor is not your effort or your talents or your wisdom. The decisive factor in the success of that building is the will of your maker. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4, Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. All of life depends upon God's blessing. So the question as we approach this wisdom literature is, will you seek His blessing? To seek His blessing is to seek to know and to align yourself with His will. And thus to seek his blessing is to seek him in prayer and in his word. To build anything apart from prayer and apart from his revealed will in his word is to build upon sinking sand, as Jesus said. Do all you do with God in view, for there can be no success apart from his blessing. Look now at the second proverb. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Two Sundays ago, we were in the Olivet Discourse in Mark chapter 13. Very challenging text where Jesus told of the the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the coming destruction of that temple in Jerusalem within 40 years time. 
And Jesus foretold of how prophets would arise who would assure the people of Israel that they would be safe if they simply took refuge behind the seemingly impenetrable walls of that temple, the house of the Lord. But Jesus said, 40 years in advance, that not a single stone would be left on top of another. The Lord was foretelling that he would not watch over that rebellious city any longer. And thus, the watchmen stayed awake in vain. Do all you do with God in view, for there can be no security apart from his blessing. No success, no security, verse 2, no sustenance. Verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You can burn the midnight oil and you can work your fingers to the bone, but no amount of fretful, anxious toil can guarantee success or security or even sustenance. Of course, there can be no success or security or sustenance without much labor. But you labor knowing that the outcome is not ultimately in your hands, but in the hands of the one who has called you his beloved. The hands of the one who gives to his beloved sleep. We see here that the heart of the Bible's contemplative wisdom the wisdom of Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of Job. It's the call to trust God's sovereign plan to accomplish His good purposes in and through your life, whatever may come. So yes, work hard, doing all that you do with Him in view, and then sleep well, trusting that He is at work and that He knows what He's doing. Work hard, sleep well, trust the one who has you in His hands. Notice the ascending order of importance in these first three Proverbs with these first three good gifts from God. First, there is success in building. But whatever success you you may have and whatever it is that you are building, it's all for naught if there is no security. If the city walls don't hold and is trampled down upon by oppressors, whether they be terrorists or an invading army or a corrupt government or a natural disaster, or a sweeping illness. So security is more important than success. But none of that matters if the ground doesn't bring forth sustenance. Security, success, sustenance. And it's this meditation upon God's good gifts of success and security and sustenance that then leads to a celebration of one of the greatest of God's good gifts, sons and daughters. Children are one of God's greatest gifts. Verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Now the topic of the gift of children can be painful for many for any variety of reasons. There are those who have not been able to raise a family due to the lack of a spouse. Then there are are couples who have suffered from infertility or miscarriages or the loss of children on this side of the womb. And then there are parents who have lost communication with wayward children. This can be a, a painful subject. 
This good gift has not been granted to all people or even to all of God's people, to those who have faithfully sought to know and to worship Him alone. Recall the barrenness of Abraham and Sarah until they were a hundred years old. And the initial barrenness of Isaac and Rebekah. And even of Jacob and Rachel until late in life when Rachel finally gave birth to Joseph and then died giving birth to Benjamin. God does not give this good gift to all of His children. Still, however painful this subject may be for some here today, this good gift of God that is given to many is worthy of praise from all. And we are all meant to learn this wisdom that shapes our priorities and shapes our worldview. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The majority of the times that we see this word heritage is translated as inheritance. They're an inheritance from the Lord. But, but here it clearly means gift. As the New Living Translation and the New American Standard translate this verse, children are a gift from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, meaning a gracious gift to be received with joy and greatly treasured. Now, yes, they require a great deal of work, children do. Each one introduces a, a whole new set of hardships. Far beyond losing seven hours of sleep the two nights before Christmas Eve to assemble a play kitchen. <laughs> they don't come with a very detailed instruction manual. And there is far more than just some assembly required. The assembly, if you will, is a chore that never really ends in this lifetime. But that itself is part of the blessing. It's the gift of responsibility of mission. Responsibility itself is a gift. We see this from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Having created the first man and the first woman, it says that God blessed them. How? How did He bless them? He blessed them by commanding them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That mission was and is the blessing. The fruitful labor of helping to bring to fruition God's good vision for His world. A world covered with people, made in His image, worshiping Him in peace and harmony. Of course the mission is hard. What good thing worth doing isn't hard? The best gifts all come with responsibility as part of the goodness of the gift. The gift of a spouse comes with responsibility. Devotion and care till death do you part. The gift of salvation comes with responsibility. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Take up your cross and follow me. Bear one another's burdens. Speak the truth in love to one another. And so on the list of one another's goes. The gift of salvation comes with responsibility. And the gift of sons and daughters is no exception. But our culture needs to be reawakened to the goodness, to the blessing of others-oriented, self-sacrificing responsibility. The psalm continues, verse 4, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. That phrase, children of one's youth, 
uh, seems to highlight the tremendous blessing that children are to parents once those children are grown. So it's specifically grown children who are like arrows in the hand of a warrior, ready and able to help support and to defend their parents when faced with enemies at the gate. The city gate uh, was not only used uh, as a, a place where you would confront the invaders, but, but it was also the place where legal and economic disputes were settled in ancient Israel. Notice how the gifts uh, of grown children help to bring the previously mentioned gifts. Grown children help with the task of building. Grown children help with the task of securing what is built. And grown children help with the task of bringing forth food from the earth. These good gifts that he's been talking about, they all are related. And we must not spurn God's good gifts. Commenting on this psalm in regard to American culture 156 years ago, in 1867, William Plummer wrote this. It is a growing evil of modern times that marriages are so often deferred till it is highly improbable that in the course of nature the father can live to mold his offspring to habits of honor and virtue, and thus to be able to enjoy the blessing spoken of here, the blessing of grown children, because of deferred marriages, because of deferred times of having children. That was 156 years ago. What would past generations of Christians have to say about modern culture that largely spurns the gift of marriage and children altogether? This last Tuesday, the government of China released figures showing that last year, 9.56 million children were born in China and 10.41 million died creating a net population loss of 850,000 people. So China is shrinking. This is the first time in more than 60 years that more people have died in China than were born. But this has been a long time in the making, as the birth rate in China has been declining for well over 60 years. And this is no small issue. This is a major crisis. China's population is growing old, and there simply are not going to be enough young people to keep the economy afloat and to provide everything that the aging population needs. And it's already too late to solve this problem through a baby boom for several reasons. The first being that the children born today will not be able to enter the workforce in time to offset those who have and who will grow too old to remain in it. The second reason that it's already too late is that China's government has created a culture where children are not seen as a good gift from God. And it's going to be extremely difficult to change that public opinion and to reverse the plummeting birth rate. So how did they get to where they are? Aside from having persecuted those who spread beliefs about a creator God to whom we are all answerable. Well, in addition to that, A key part of their particular cultural rot stems from the evil and foolish one-child-only policy they introduced in 1978. In response to the foolish myth of overpopulation, the government sought to prevent any family from having more than one child. And this policy was enforced through fines, 
through forced sterilization of those who would not comply, through pressure to perform abortions, and as many, many records indicate, even through forced abortions and through the killing of newborns discovered. Ten years ago, in 2013, after 35 years of this policy, China reported that 336 million abortions had been performed and 196 million sterilizations. That was 10 years ago. When 35 years' time, they had killed 336 million babies. How many more over the last 10 years? Now, since 2016, the foolish and wicked Chinese Communist Party has realized the disastrous consequences of their evil policy. And they had not only been pulling back from the one-child-only policy, but they began trying to incentivize people to get married, have children. We are headed for disaster. But the culture has been shaped by 45 years' worth of these anti-child, anti-family, anti-God policies, with their birth rate now at an historic, disastrous low. Commenting on this latest news out of China from Tuesday, one public thinker put it this way, a nation's birth rate demonstrates the worldview of that people more than anything else does. In terms of worldview, there is nothing that is more indicative than the understanding of the role and promise of children. Any society that sees children to be a problem rather than a blessing is a society that has embraced its own destruction. And that describes China today. And to a somewhat lesser degree, Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea. We must not spurn God's good gifts. And yet, we would not be acknowledging this as the 40th annual National Sanctity of Human Life Sunday in our own nation if our own culture still possessed the wisdom to see that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So how did we get here? Our government has not enforced a one-child-only policy for the last 45 years. So why is it that our birth rate has also significantly declined since the 1950s? dropping below the replacement rate each of the last 12 years? And why is it that an estimated 65 and a half million abortions have been performed in our nation since 1973? It's believed that 25%, one out of every four American women alive today, will have an abortion by the end of their childbearing years. What that means is that many of the families represented in this room have been touched by abortion. And so before I say anything else about this sin, let it be clear, none is righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 10 and 23. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. No one looks down on anyone else there. Instead, we all look up to the crucified Savior who bore all our sins on that tree. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 No matter how great a sinner you know yourself to be, or that you know a loved one in your life to be, Christ is a greater Savior. No sin is more powerful than the blood of our Savior. He can wash away any 
sin. So with that glorious truth, never far from view, so that's the question, how did our society come to spurn God's good gifts of children and to accept the deliberate taking of their lives in the womb? There's much that can be pointed to as contributing to this, but, but stepping back, there are a few key developments that have been used to dull our nation's conscience. In short, it's the embrace of pseudoscience unscientific delusions that are propped up with the label science. Much of this began with, with Darwin's publication of On the Origin of the Species in 1859, as it presented a theory of evolutionary biology that, that he believed could explain the origin of humanity, though that initial publication only hinted at the theory's applicability to humans. Many others have since built on those notions, claiming to find evidence that points to such human origins though any such evidence always raises more questions than answers. The theory has more holes than a sponge, but it does help the sinner's constants to be dulled. As it's one step toward explaining our existence apart from the existence of a God to whom we are answerable. But that theory of human evolution only went so far. There was still this nagging concern over the obvious fact that the world did not create itself. But then came along the Big Bang Theory, the 1920s, based on the scientific observations that the universe is expanding from some starting point. Of course, there was and there is no explanation for the origin of that theorized point of singularity from which everything then emerged, and for why it is that it went bang the way that it did. But it does help to dull the sinner's conscience, as it's another step toward explaining our existence apart from the existence of a God to whom we are answerable. And without a creator who bestows life, well, who's to say that every human life possesses inherent dignity and is equally valuable? After all, it had only been since 1865 that slavery was abolished in this nation. And so as soon as a, a relatively safe means of terminating an undesired pregnancy emerged in the 1950s, people turned to science to provide justification for devaluing the life of the preborn child. And along came highly unscientific claims about when life begins. But scientifically, there is not and has never been any question about when life begins. The moment that the father's seed fertilizes the mother's egg, the seed and the egg no longer exist individually. For at the moment of fertilization, a new human life is formed with his own unique DNA, distinct from that of the mother and of the father. So though the, the human embryo is inside of its mother, it is radically distinct from its mother. It is inside of her body, but it is not her body. It is a living body all its own, and thus it is a living being all its own. Yes, it's utterly dependent upon its mother for survival, but it's not like that changes at birth. Newborns can't care for themselves either. The issue has never been about, quote, when life begins. We've known that for a long, long time. It's about when a life worthy of protection begins. Or put differently, when personhood begins. And that is simply not something that science can answer. Because personhood is a philosophical and moral question, not a scientific question. 
never has been, and never will be. That is not the realm of science to answer. It's philosophy and ethics. And when it comes to conferring personhood, picking any point of development after fertilization is entirely arbitrary. Whether it be when you, be, you can sense brain activity or a heartbeat or when the child begins to sense pain or is so-called viable. You could just as easily pick any other stage of development. It's arbitrary. And furthermore, not only is it arbitrary, but nearly every philosophical criteria put forward to defend abortion ends up extending beyond birth. And thus, whatever philosophical criteria you put forward for, for saying, well, it's not a person until... Well, it extends beyond birth, and thus it can and has been used to justify the killing of unwanted newborn infants. Just look at what professors write in the academia today. They defend this. Beyond that, it doesn't just extend to newborn infants. It extends to the killing of elderly people with severe dementia. It extends to the killing of anyone who has cognitive issues, including those in comas. You can just look at the, the first letter to the editor that was run in last Sunday's print edition of the New York Times from Professor Emeritus of Cell Biology at Columbia University who admits that his philosophical criteria for personhood extends beyond birth into infancy and thus can justify the killing of a newborn baby if it is unwanted. So that's where pseudoscience has led us. But what hath God said? Psalm 139. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Susan read earlier from Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke begins with the announcement of the conception and birth of John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel appeared to John's father, Zechariah, saying, Your wife Elizabeth, who was barren and older in life, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. From his conception, John was John. Then, six months later, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John, Gabriel then appeared to the Virgin Mary, saying, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. See, Jesus did not take on humanity at his birth, as we sometimes say around Christmas time. No, he took on humanity. He became a human being at his miraculous conception. And when the so-called fetus that was Jesus entered into the presence of the so-called fetus that was John, John leaped for joy within his mother's womb. Clumps of cells don't leap for joy at the presence of other clumps of cells. People leap for joy at the presence of other people. And this was joy for the greatest of God's good gifts. It was joy for the sending of God the Son to come and save us from our sins, to save us from our foolish ways, to save us from our rejection of His good designs for our lives, and from our spurning of His good gifts. 
God's revelation regarding the inherent dignity of preborn children is clear. Neither science nor philosophy, when viewed critically, yield any other conclusion. And yet, millions of Americans embrace this pseudoscience delusion. Why? What is the driving factor for accepting this falsehood? The vast majority of pregnancies that end with abortion are not of children conceived between a devoted husband and wife. At least 86% of the abortions performed in America in recent years were of children conceived outside of marriage. You see, it's not women's health that is being so vehemently defended and fought for. It's fornication. That's the driving factor of this rebellion. It's about accommodating a life of unhindered sexual immorality, no matter the cost, even if that means murder. So how then do we, do we respond? We proclaim God's good gifts. We do all that we can to compassionately call people to receive His good gift of marriage and of sex within marriage. But for those who spurn those gifts, we do all that we can to compassionately call them to receive His good gift of children regardless of how they were conceived. And we find ways to support and to encourage expectant mothers and fathers who are scared of the difficulties that lie ahead of them, partnering with organizations like Pregnancy Help Center of Fort Worth. Beyond that, we find ways to support and encourage those providing foster care to children in need of homes. We consider opening up our own homes. We find ways to support and encourage those pursuing adoption. You can pray for, for Ashley and me in that regard as we're hoping to grow our family through adoption once again this year. And we're now in the waiting stages. Find ways to help expectant mothers and fathers choose life. They need to hear the message of Psalm 127. They need to hear that whatever life they were hoping for and building before this pregnancy, whatever life they think that they will lose with the birth of this child, whatever stability and security they think the death of this child would afford them. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, build it, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Any anxieties and fears about the struggles this child may bring cannot be solved by rebelling against the giver of this good gift. So seek His will. Seek His wisdom. Seek His blessing, for He gives to His beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. So gladly receive whatever good gifts come down to you from your Heavenly Father as you strive to do all that you do with Him in view. Let us pray. Father, as we seek to give thanks to you and praise for the good gifts that you have bestowed upon us, we ask you to further align our hearts with yours, that we may treasure what you treasure and walk in accord with your good designs for our lives and help us to minister these wonderful, glorious truths to those around us. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.